Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Ros Taylor. On this week's edition, the Prime Minister is back at work. Will he be the same Boris Johnson as before, or has serious illness changed him? And with the Cabinet increasingly restive, is the Prime Minister who resisted lockdown now our best guarantee that he'll stay in place for as long as is necessary? Plus, this was supposed to be the levelling up government, then Covid-19 put pay to all that. Will infrastructure and transport be the key to resurrecting Britain's economy? Yes, even HS2. Conservative MP and member of the Transport Select Committee Robert Largan joins us to discuss building upwards while the economy is heading downwards. And is journalism having an especially bad corona crisis? Trust is down, journalists who were already wounded by Brexit are under renewed fire. Is our media really doing the bad job that the hardliners say it is? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome to the podcast. Don't forget we're doing another live stream with the Romaniacs on the evening of Thursday, 7th of May. It's taking place on Zoom because we all need a little more Zoom in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to register to join in and support the show too, now you can, because we're delighted to announce the launch of the Bunker Patreon. Support us for as little as $2 a month on the crowdfunding platform Patreon and you'll get access to the live stream plus early bird tickets to our real world live shows when life gets back to normal. Sign up for $5 a month and you'll get your choice of the brand new bunker mugs in a choice of four designs and there are exciting other benefits too. Find out more on our social media or search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now let's meet the panel. Returning to the bunker, it's the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, hello. Um, I am exactly the same as every other day, because every other day is exactly the same as all the other days in this endless series of grey misery that we're now trapped in. Thanks, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, there's no change. There's no change. It's like Groundhog Day without the joy, isn't it, really? (laughs) It's our... It's our last chance to enjoy the press conference substitutes. Pretty Patel seemed to take a lot of pride in the fact that crimes such as shoplifting had fallen, despite the fact that most shops in the nation are shut. Mm. Were, were you impressed by her brass neck? No. Um, no, it's quite... She, she is really quite staggeringly imbecilic. And that... I thought that that comment just sort of opened up. You're just like, I can't... As she's saying it, who's, what's the name of that bloke that does the, the videos online where he, he acts like he's in another room shouting down the thing? A comedian. Michael someone, yeah. Okay. It's, it's like, it, it literally makes you feel like that because it's just like, she can't really be fucking saying this right now, can she? Like, she can't actually be coming out with this stuff. But in fact, she is. And what's like telling about that? I mean, you could, you know, there's the instinctive thing to laugh at her. The same way that you remember when she she eventually had to leave her job on Theresa May because she was just too foolish to understand the manner in which the Israelis were, were, were using her to pursue their own agenda. Like, now we have exactly the same situation. And yet when you look at what the Home Office is actually in charge of during this, it's making decisions that screw over like the most vulnerable people you can imagine. Not the least of which, by the way, is immigration detention centers, which they have been warned over and over again. These places, because the staff go in and out, are basically just at like a, a vortex for transmission of this stuff. And they are consistently failing to take the action that they've been abused to. So you spend half the time laughing at her stupidity and the other half just in complete despair that she's in charge of other matters which are quite so sensitive. 
Dominic Raab rejected calls for a public inquiry into the government's handling of coronavirus. Will there inevitably be one one day, do you think, Ian? So, yeah, I mean, look, I think there pretty much inevitably will be an inquiry. We keep on acting as if it's a done deal that it will be held because obviously the case for it is so, you know, patent and watertight. Um, but the government will fight it as much as they possibly can. I mean, think about, you know, you even take like an inquiry that, that ultimately seems to vindicate the government. Like, you know, you take the, the inquiry into the Iraq war or something like that. Um, even there, you take major damage just because over the course of the inquiry, it just consumes news headlines. And most of the stuff that's found is very, very damaging. So they are going to fight it as much as they can. But I just think in this case, unlike in Brexit, which, you know, intellectually and morally, of course, there should be an inquiry eventually over Brexit. But because of the tribalism around it, they have a much better chance of fighting it off. With COVID, I think it'll be almost impossible for them to do so. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean they won't try. Also back on the bunker, we have Best for Britain CEO Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Do you read me? <laughs> this is Naomi Tarouz. I'm reading you over. Excellent. Um, over the weekend, we were told that Tory grandees want the lockdown lifted. Who are these grandees? Aren't we past paying attention to people just because they've been around a long time and no doubt supported Brexit? <laughs> yeah, so there was some stuff over the weekend, but but winding back a few days before that, um, there were quotes, um, very tense conversations at a meeting of the 1922 Committee of Tory backbenchers. And they were voicing fears that unless the lockdown was eased within the next few weeks, the UK may no longer have a functioning economy to go back to. Um, I think one was even reported as having said that thousands of British businesses are going under, and another described the government's messaging uh, on lockdown as ludicrous. Um, and then, of course, you had this weekend, uh, the Sunday Times piece that I think you're referring to, um, where we had cabinet ministers and, importantly for Johnson, six pretty major Tory donors joining those backbench calls to ease the lockdown sooner rather than later. Now, do you call these people grandees? Um, I don't. Uh, but if I was a conservative, I probably wouldn't want to ignore them too much, given that they've gifted millions, um, either to Johnson's leadership campaign or to the war chest for the general election in December 2019. And their argument is that we need to save the country from bankruptcy. But it's not just them. Um, obviously, Keir Starmer has also uh, been calling for an exit strategy plan. Um, and several European countries have already set out their lockdown lifting measures. And so, I mean, I think some of the arguments in favour of lifting the lockdown are that, that the public is growing weary of it. People are beginning to break the lockdown anyway. But that isn't really what we're actually seeing in reality. Yes, there's been a, a bit of uptick in the volume of people walking around. But there does seem to remain very broad compliance with and support for the lockdown. Um, a Delta poll today shows the vast majority of Brits believe the government is doing the right thing and that easing the lockdown now would be a bad thing. Um, and that's regardless of their financial situation. What, of course, we don't know is how long that compliance can hold, especially you know, for, for people who have lost their jobs, um, they're beginning to feel the pinch, they may start to not comply and feel that they have to go out and, and get some kind of work. Um, so, uh, no, we don't have to listen to these grandees, but there will be huge internal pressure on Johnson to listen to some of these people, I'd imagine. Let's begin with Corona, inevitably. The Prime Minister is back at work after more than three weeks off sick with COVID-19. 
In Johnson's bulging in tray is a decision that may well define his premiership. How and when to begin easing the lockdown measures that have been in place for over five weeks. There are also the small matters of meeting the 100,000 a day testing target before Thursday evening, rolling out a South Korea-style contact tracing programme in a few weeks, and solving ongoing PPE shortages. Oh, and digging the UK out of the worst recession in nearly a century. And Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Naomi, is Johnson positioning himself as a born-again lockdown enthusiast? That seems to have been the spin coming out of number 10 in recent days. Yeah, I mean, it does a bit. And, uh, you know, as I just touched on, he's coming under all this pressure internally to do the opposite of that. So... I think it remains to be seen. Um, But his speech yesterday was was kind of like tricky to unpick and to know what he really wanted to say. Because on the one hand, he said, we simply cannot spell out now how fast or slow or even when the changes will be made. But then he also talked about the need for maximum possible transparency. And those statements just seem to contradict each other. Yeah, I noticed that. It's it's just can't be reconciled, can it? No, no. The line seems to be the NHS was not overwhelmed, therefore we are doing well. Um, Are we doing well? Because it doesn't feel like that to me. No, uh, of course we're not. Um, And while the NHS, of course, has coped admirably, um, you know, it's done so in the face of a lack of PPE and the cost of more than 100 of their colleagues' lives. Um, And then, of course, today we've seen the ONS death figures for care homes. You know, our, our hospitals may well have avoided and we you know it, it could come back but um the scenes that we saw in italian hospitals a few weeks ago but our care homes are absolute hotbeds of viral spread at the moment and there were 2000 care home deaths just this week um so so no of course we're not doing well the truth is the uk currently has 10% of all global deaths despite our population being just a fraction of the world population and despite us being one of the richest countries in the world and despite us having weeks uh, to prepare that we squandered with our usual exceptionalism mm-hmm. and thinking we would somehow have a different virus to the one that had plagued Wuhan and Milan before us. So, no, I don't think we're in a, a position to be crowing about anything, frankly. Most newspapers said some form of lockdown easing was coming on May the 7th when it's next up for review. In Italy, Prime Minister Conte has set out a detailed plan of what is going to open on what dates. Are we going to see that here, do you think? Well, the rumour mill infers that we will and that that will be this week um, with Cabinet, I think, is due to be signing it all off on Thursday morning. Um, and, it, it, you know, if the rumours are to be believed, we're going to go for this kind of partial release. And, you know, Ros, I am incredibly sorry to tell you that it doesn't look as if schools are going to be among the first wave <laughs> of things that get to reopen. Um, it's expected that they'll announce kind of staggered work times to avoid any kind of rush hour or peak volume of people using public transport. Uh, non-essential stores may well be allowed to reopen so long as that, they, you know, they can prove and commit that they are putting the markings out as the supermarkets have done to keep people two meters apart and that um, I think sports fixtures with no audiences uh, might happen again such as Premier League matches and things like that so towards the end of this week I think we will subject to there being cabinet agreement about that and that's a big if given the uh, the, 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 the you know ministers that waded in over the weekend to say we need to lift lockdown sooner uh, we should be hearing a plan by the end of this week. 
Ian, with this impending release from lockdown, do you think the MPM's message on Monday about not releasing too soon might be a way of spinning a perceived earlier release into a win? No, I'm not so sure about that. I think basically what he's trying to do is um, he was he was essentially making a case against most of those people that were breathing it. And ultimately where he fell, I felt, was towards, you know, you have to accept that this is going to go on for quite a lot longer in some form or another. Even though before he got to that key point, he spent a good minute, you know, basically making the argument that he was about to try and dispel. So I thought, I mean, I, I thought it was pre- pretty clear what, what he was getting at there. I mean, what what kind of got me was just that moment, and then he just um, sort of alluded to it, of him basically talking about our successes. And you just think like, look, don't fucking say that. Do not talk about your success right now, because we are sat here watching extraordinary levels of death in our country. So for you to just come out, regardless of anything that any prime minister would have gone through, anyone else has gone through, and to, to dare to talk about success in any capacity right now mm. just felt completely obscene to me. I mean, today we got like the latest ONS stuff on, on just deaths in, in care homes was fucking astonishing. I mean, it was talking about 9,707 excess deaths in England and Welsh care homes. And you just think like in this situation where, you know, you've only had ministers relatively recently, I mean, we're talking just weeks ago, start saying, well, we're going to start screening for COVID when people leave hospital and go into care homes, something that should have been done in January. I mean, way before this hit, if it was, you know, a government that was actually thinking actively about how to protect its citizens, that would not have happened. And on that basis, you know, just for him to have said those words, I mean, that was the point where, I mean, I was listening to a speech, but once that sentence came out, I just got this sort of just crazy buzz of fury because it was just like you have absolutely no right to talk about success in any capacity whatsoever. I agree. It's completely tone deaf. If we've had, you know, 20,000 plus hospital deaths, 9,000 plus social care home deaths, then we've got millions of grieving people in this country right now. Mm -hmm. And they are not feeling like there is anything to crow about that these are not successes. We are not winning. We are grieving. Uh, so I agree that, that that line was totally tone deaf. There's also this, I mean, just this, I've been talking about this on Twitter this week, but this, this disconnect between the manner in which we speak about this here and the manner in which the rest of the world is talking about us. And it is, it is one of the deepest divides I, I, I have seen. I mean, anything I hear from friends overseas is when they check in and go like, my God, like, are you okay? I mean, they sort of expect me to be in the middle of some kind of, you know, ravaged war zone by the stuff that they're seeing. It's incomprehensible to them that it's been so severe here and that the government has messed up so badly. And yet that is not the sort of the form of the narrative that's taking place here. But once you do hear those messages coming from overseas to then see the prime minister talk about success is just completely staggering. Yeah, I've seen some new research that suggests that people are routinely underestimating the number of deaths in Britain compared to, relatively speaking, compared to other countries. So Mm -hmm. certainly I think that's going on. What did you make of the furore about Dominic Cummings attending the SAGE meetings? Because it's hard to imagine him sitting there being quiet. And in fact, members have spoken about him making lengthy interventions. Is that acceptable? No, it isn't. Um, And the defence of what was happening seems to me sort of illogical. I mean, the defence, you know, Sage's job is to provide impartial advice to the government for it to act on. 
Then we were sort of told, well, don't be so ridiculous. It's fine that he's there because that's, you know, that's what we want as ministers getting the scientific advice. And you think, well, yeah, except that that's the input process, ultimately. I mean, he doesn't seem to be under any of the restrictions that you would have from sort of, you know, members from devolved nations going in where they can observe but not not talk, not ask questions. He seemed to be able to talk. And in fact, as you say, like the, when The Guardian spoke to people um, anonymously who were in the committee, they're saying, well, he was talking actually quite a bit. So that looked very much like he was inputting into the process rather than receiving it, which he would anyway have been able to do when you receive the recommendations that they provide. So, I mean, you know, you look at that situation, it's not, it's not like there's a great smoking gun. I mean, there's no, you know, immediate sort of evidence that he's actively there trying to um, influence it. Although, you know, from what we know about him and the reports that have come out, that seems like a, a very credible conclusion to draw. But by the end of it, you just think, well, fine, we quite clearly need the minutes of these meetings. And we quite clearly need to know what the membership is of, of this thing. I mean, th- this is not a tolerable state of affairs where it's so cloaked in secrecy. And I haven't heard a good argument for why that should continue to be the case. And these questions will continue to go on until they do actually provide both of those things. Now, it's a first for the bunker this week. We're joined by our first ever Conservative MP guest. He's one of the newest members of Parliament, having won his seat in the 2019 general election, and he's worryingly young at 32. (laughs) It's the Conservative MP for High Peak, Robert Largan. Hello, Robert. How and where are you? Hello. I'm up in uh, the Peak District in lovely Glossop. I'm doing well, thank you. That sounds gorgeous. What's it like being an MP but being unable to go into work? How have you been finding the virtual Parliament so far? Um, Well, it's been... It's been a very surreal time. This morning I did my first virtual question via Zoom. A very strange experience, I have to say. You were starting to get to the point where a few months in, starting to get used to how things worked and then suddenly having to get used to a whole different reality, really, of how, thing, of how, how things are operating now. So it's, it's, uh, it's very challenging. What did you pick for your, for your background in your Zoom question? I just had uh, my living room as my background. I avoided the temptation to put the Imperial Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have got points with our listeners if you had. Your specialist subject is infrastructure and transport. Before everything was knocked off its rails by COVID, we were expecting massive investment in neglected parts of the UK. The government's interventions have changed everything, but we're going to have to spend money somewhere to get the economy moving again. And massive infrastructure projects are the traditional way of doing it. Before COVID overturned everything, Robert, what for you were the projects that were crying out for attention? Because rail transport in the North Midlands is especially dire, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I think London commuters sometimes don't even know they're born. When you when you on a platform on a, on a tube station, and you see someone gets to the platform and sees that it's five minutes to the next train and stamps their feet with uh, frustration. If you miss a train in lots of stations in my constituency, in my part of the world, then the next one is sometimes not for two hours. There's all sorts of different projects which um, desperately needed. There's all sorts of arguments about whether it should be Northern Powerhouse Rail or HS2. That's something which I've always found incredibly frustrating. I don't remember London being forced to choose between Crossrail and Crossrail 2 and Thameslink. They've got them all. The last week's Transport Select Committee hearing there was all sorts of discussions of, well, if we don't have the industry capacity to do all these projects, you know, obviously we're not going to be able to invest um, more in the north. The question that I put was, well, which project in London and the southeast are we going to cancel then? Which, uh, <laughs> which uh, certainly surprised uh, w- the witnesses. But 
this is one of the things which absolutely has to happen because if you look at the UK, our GDP, um, we have you know one of the biggest uh, economies in the world. But if you look at regional GDP, if you look at how we're doing in places like the Northwest, in the Midlands, the Northeast, Yorkshire, our regional GDP does not compare very favourably at all with a lot of Europe. And a huge part of that problem comes down to transport infrastructure. And there's all these debates and economists scratching their head about product productivity gap, how we're going to solve it. And a huge part of that quite simply comes down to transport. Transport. Why is the North poor? It's not because they're lazier. You know, us Northerners are lazier and less talented. The biggest difference is that London's got a world-class integrated transport infrastructure and we don't. We've seen how quickly an emergency hospital, for example, can come together with an HS Nightingale, you know, much faster than we ever thought possible. Now, rail isn't quite the same thing, but potentially other kinds of transport like buses, you know, can get going quite fast. Um, do you do you think this this experience of these weeks is going to be an example to us of what can get done fast if we want it to? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I think it's a reminder that the, a lot of British institutions and, and the ability of the state is very strong to get things done very quickly when it needs to in an emergency. I would say that those lessons are somewhat limited. I don't think that we can just simply apply them and say, oh, if we can get this hospital done, then a temporary hospital done in a few weeks, then why can't we build a, a railway line in faster than 10 years? You know, a, a hospital is going into a exhibition centre, which is very easy to acquire which isn't being used for anything else because we can't have any events on and that's very different between having to compulsory purchase land going through judicial reviews environmental assessments consultations one of the things i always find quite frustrating is lots of people say oh why why don't we do infrastructure faster why can't we build these projects faster i'd never hear those people saying that we should be um, scaling back on our environmental protections and we should be limiting property rights and mean that compensation doesn't exist. So often something of the how hard can it be school of politics when it comes to <laughs> we just do these things faster, which um, I find some kind of bit eye-rolling juice. For over 40 years, the Conservatives have been the party that doesn't intervene, especially on infrastructure. I mean, there are exceptions like Channel Tunnel, for example. Do you feel your party is getting used to this new normal where... We spend big and we spend quickly. Well, I think when it comes to big transport infrastructure, the reality is is that government intervention is required. I'm um, certainly not an ideological Puritan and we have to be pragmatic. And I do think that the new Conservative Parliamentary Party is very much more leaning towards one that is prepared to do see intervention when it's needed on infrastructure projects because there's no other way to get these things done. Naomi, what sort of investment do you think the government should be focusing on at this point? Well, you know, I often um, advocate for um, a return to um, the levels of housing uh, that were built under a Conservative government under Harold Macmillan. Um, that's another example of when 
conservative governments have spent an awful lot of money on building big and, and housing is a critical part of infrastructure um, and and often transport infrastructure and housing go hand in hand and help unlock each other. Um, you see that uh, buildings get completed much more quickly when they're within one kilometre of a railway station, for instance, than you do developments that, that are further out and the developer will tend to release those homes more slowly over time. So I would really, really like us to see an enormous um, output in terms of house building, both uh, social housing and private sector housing. Um, and I think the, the current lockdown has brought into stark relief just how difficult housing conditions are. Um, across the country and you know there are different challenges you know in, in London and the southeast it is a lack of supply that causes the housing crisis in other parts of the country it can be uh, around the quality of housing but now people are forced into those homes you know lots of people aren't able to work from home not because they don't work in a job that that can't allow that but because they they don't have um, space to they they may share bedrooms the the living room may have been turned over to become another bedroom to help keep the rental costs down for the housemates that, that are sharing that HMO so I'd really love to see on top of the the projects that that Robert mentions a really big output in housing But COVID has created a whole new ball game in terms of transport. People are hardly travelling at all now and nobody really knows how long it will take before we're back to some kind of normal. Are projects like HS2, which you're, you obviously say you're back, going to have to change in any way? We're going to have to do a big assessment after after the current crisis when it comes to transport. Um, but I can't see a scenario where the West Coast mainline is not going to be at max capacity in the next 10, 15 years. It's already there. I can't see a scenario where we're not going to want to free up extra freight capacity. We're not going to want to reduce our reliance on internal flights and not going to get, try and get people off, off of roads and onto far lower carbon tra- travel when it comes to train. And I can't see a scenario where we're not going to need to free up those bottlenecks in for commuter, commuter services. I think it's badly needed. So, yeah, obviously this crisis means that we've got to reassess everything. But HS2 is a project which is fundamental both to reducing regional inequality and improving transport across the whole country and reducing our reliance on things like internal flights. Speaking of cars, though, um, the air's clearer in London at least, um, presumably in other cities as well, and that's refreshing. But people with cars are going to use them rather than get back on public transport and risk infection. Um, It's been predicted that rail travel could be down 20% even once the crisis is over, the immediate crisis. What can we do to lure people back? What can we do to give them confidence in public transport, given that they will probably see it as a hotbed of infection? Well, I think think there's two things. Obviously, there's the immediate issue of the crisis and making people confident that they can travel without being at risk. At the same time, I think fundamentally, if you want to get people out of cars and onto trains and other public transport, then you just need far better, far more reliable services. A huge part of the reason why lots of people have to travel by car is because their public transport service where they are is not good enough. As I say, there are towns and villages in my constituency that you miss your train the next one's not for two hours and that's if it's running on time 
And so you need to get a lot of this public transport over a critical point where it's reliable enough, it's frequent enough that people can actually rely on it. And until you do that, a lot of people are going to stay with cars because there's no other option for them, unfortunately. In transport, course, the biggest crisis is probably with airlines. Um, cash flow has completely evaporated for many of those. Should we, as a taxpayer, be bailing out firms like Virgin Atlantic, who have billionaire bosses with private islands, or should we refuse to do that on the basis that they can take the hit a lot easier than others in society can? I'm not going to be uh, calling for Richard Branson to get a bailout. Um but I do think that we have to think very carefully about whether we, where we're going to end up at the end of this crisis, whether we're going to have an aviation industry left and what's going to happen to uh, franchise providers when it comes to, tra- to trains. I think that is, there is a really, really big risk. Aviation's really badly hit, and whenever the lockdown ends it's quite clear that aviation is going to continue to be hit for quite a long time after that. It's hard to see a scenario where people are going to be rushing back to travel, particularly to certain countries and certain routes that before were incredibly popular, incredibly profitable. So I think we do have to think really carefully about this, but I'm not I'm not convinced that straight up bailouts is the way the way forward, but definitely we're going to have to have a very very careful think about where we can actually support, um, particularly the aviation industry going forward. But then again, the aviation industry is probably going to have to accept that a lot of the routes and a lot that existed before are not going to be as profitable as the as they once were. Whatever happens. Yeah, and in the 1930s, we had the Works Project Administration during the American New Deal, and it initially spent 6.7% of GDP, and it left big landmarks like the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles and Camp David in Maryland. Do we have the scope and capacity in Britain to, to do something like that? Could it be our way out of recession? Yeah, you have the I mean, like, so you, you go to like when Keynes was arguing for this stuff, and you know, the argument was basically like, we, we don't do these things because we think we don't have the money. And the reason we don't have the money is because we're not doing them. In his, in scenarios where there's a lack of demand in the economy, his solution was basically saying, look, there's too much saving. You've got private companies saving, you've got individuals saving. If the government saves too, there's just no demand anywhere. So that's the point the government has to step in. Um, he didn't really give a fuck how you did it. Like, I mean, you know, Keynes' uh, sort of example was you could, you could get a bunch of guys, get them to sort of put money in bottles and just dig it into the ground, and then a private company would come along and, and, and dig it out again. And that would do it. But while we're here, we might as well make something useful. In his example, he was like housing. He's like, look, even if nothing else, at least we'd get some decent housing out of it. So you've, you've, you've got the capacity insofar as the problem is there. And if the problem is there... That's how you get out of it. The only danger we've got coming out of this thing is making sure that we address the right economic problem. Right? Economists are very bad at um, taking, you know, if, if they've got a hammer, everything's a nail. And basically, sort of Keynesians had, a, had an issue, especially in the 70s during stagflation, where they just kept on applying the same old solution to it, even though the problem was demonstrably new. So they were making the sort of inflation part of it worse without addressing the, the stag part of it. 
it, but the chances are coming out of this that it will still be a demand problem that we face. Not immediately. I mean, immediately we'll come out and people will start going and doing things. But the amount of damage that would have happened to people's incomes, the amount that they will suddenly owe potentially, you know, in various places, that would point towards a crisis in demand. And in that case, regardless of capacity, you've got to start stimulating. That's the first thing you've got to do. And you've got to shout down those voices who demand the opposite. Finally, nobody's having a good corona crisis, but is journalism having a particularly bad one? A new Sky News poll shows that trust in those who bring us the news and explain it has reached a worrying low. Only 17% of respondents said they trusted newspaper journalists when it comes to coronavirus, compared to 72% who didn't. Regarding TV journalists, 24% trusted them as opposed to 64% who didn't. This comes after a decade in which both left and right routinely demonise the mainstream media. Donald Trump treated it as an enemy, and now the British Prime Minister's key adviser seems to be in a constant war of attrition with the press. Ian, trust in the press has been falling for some time now, but this poll is quite bad, isn't it? It is bad. Um, It's also put... I mean, and we have to be clear about this. I mean, it's put in a way, the question, I mean, that is ga- almost guaranteed to get you the most negative answer available. Because if you look at that poll, I mean, they pick out politicians by name. You know, how do you think Keir Starmer's doing? How do you think Boris Johnson's doing? And then it's like, how do you think newspaper journalists are doing? Um, and so I think what you get there is you, you don't get, you know, for instance, sort of lefties saying the Guardian's trustworthy, but the Sun isn't. And you don't get righties saying the Telegraph's trustworthy, but the Guardian isn't. You, you just, I, I suspect, get people going like thinking about the people that they least like. What really troubled me about it, though, was the results for TV journalists. TV journalists, typically speaking, and for good reason, are considered more trustworthy, partly because they're regulated. You know what I mean? I mean, these guys are not going out there with a political agenda, or as much as Twitter might like to tell you otherwise. So at the point that they're not trusted either, then it starts to become quite concerning. And these numbers were, wor- I mean, they're, they're the worst numbers I think I've ever seen um, in terms of trust in media. And, you know, as you said, it basically cannot happen at a worse time. If politicians are more trusted than those who are meant to scrutinise them, how are we meant to effectively hold those in power to account? Who is going to do that? Yeah, well, no, that's it. I mean, that means we're fucked. I mean, that's like the worst scenario you can have is politicians being more trusted than the press. And there is a reason, as you pointed out, you know, governments around the world, especially governments involved in the culture war, are very, very happy to see journalists traduced in this way. Of course, you get it with Trump. Orban, I mean, has essentially eradicated any kind of independent media at all. I mean, there's a couple of independent journalists left in Hungary, but they're really only there for reasons of plausible deniability. I mean, there really is no independent media there. You get the same with Bolsaro. And in this country, we've had this very strange process with the press where Downing Street is almost gleeful in watching trust levels deteriorate and gleeful at the attacks on the press on the, um, about their questioning in the daily press conferences. Now, It must be fully part. I mean, it's not like every single one of those questions is perfect, but most of the criticisms that I see about journalist questioning is so naive as to be kind of, I mean, it's people sort of going, you know, oh, well, they just need to ask this question as if, you know, you ask a politician a question, sorry, uh, you know. Um, no offence, Robert. <laughs> but, you know, if you ask a politician a question in a press conference, they don't just give you the answer. That's not how this shit works. You need a follow-up question. You need to try and get over the various mechanisms that are used to evade you. So there's all this sort of armchair pundit of, well, they're just not doing a good enough job. I mean, fine. I'm not saying the job has always been completely spectacular, but there's a tremendous amount of naivety about what happens when you ask questions of politicians. 
Naomi, we've had these daily press conferences for over a month now. I've stopped watching them because I find them too frustrating personally. That's not to necessarily criticise the way journalists are doing their job. But have they been worthwhile? Well, our focus group work, um, and we've largely focused on people who have switched from voting Labour to voting Conservative. Um, they have they tell us that they found them very positive because they feel that they are getting to know the different characters in government. They can now put um, faces to, to names they'd only read about before. And it's been a way to connect people to politicians um, because for once they feel that there's an actual point to it. These politicians are standing there and offering some information that they as a citizen need in the way that PMQs just doesn't resonate with their daily life and they, they've long since tuned out of it. So I think from the perspective of connecting people to politicians, I think it's worked really well. Um, from the perspective of public trust in journalists, I think obviously this, this poll infers that it hasn't boosted their reputation. Um, the, the, the kind of doyens of this is Edelman. They do the Edelman Trust Barometer every year. Go and have a look at it. It's been running for about 20 years, I think. And they measure trust in government, politicians, business leaders, and the media. Um, and, and this year, you know, they, they've shown that um, that none of those four societal institutions that they measure um, is trusted at all. But that media is now also viewed as incompetent and unethical. Um, not just not trusted. So 57% don't believe the media does a good job of differentiating opinion and fact, um, but find them invaluable in covering news. Um, so, so, so it's you know, it, it, yeah. I think I think the daily press conferences on the whole have actually been very good for connecting government politicians to voters. Mm. Uh, but I don't think it's it's the format that has helped the media gain trust with the public. Robert, as a politician, how has your relationship with the media changed during this crisis? Do you think it's unfairly criticised or do you feel you're having the chance to get your message across? Well, I should, I should start by declaring an interest, which is that my partner's a journalist. Excellent. So, uh, <laughs> so, so your, your, your household is uh, not, not scoring too high on the trust levels at the moment. Absolutely. Um, for you. No, for obviously, you. You know, I share a lot of the concerns which you guys have been saying, which is if we don't have a trusted trusted media and that is causing huge problems for government is better to be properly scrutinized and so this fall in trust is really really concerning i think i think part of the problem has come down to the fact that a lot of the reporting has been done not through the prism of what's the most useful information but kind of through the prism of party politics you know who's having a good crisis has it though because i mean we, do, we hardly hear anything about labor to be fair i mean I, I think labor just hardly has a voice right now so is it party politics or is it more to do with personalities i mean there's an argument that it's to do with personalities but it could be very much internal party politics but there, there's definitely an element of this and it's also quite striking that a lot of the reporting and those, those commentators who have been have almost fallen into quite traditional patterns. For example, it's your Alison Pearsons and your Toby Youngs who are demanding that the lockdown get relaxed as fast as possible. Um, and at the same time, it's your Carol Codwalders who are seeing a conspiracy theory in aspects of, of everything. Uh, I think that that's part of why trust has been shaken quite a lot. There's very obviously a lens which certain reporting has gone gone down the route of but how do we fix that i'm not i'm not entirely sure i think i think there is a danger when 
politicians play a culture war and try and blame the press for everything. That's not something that I, I enjoy seeing at all, particularly as it makes my home life more difficult. Ian, who's, uh, I mean, obviously we've heard all this criticism of journalists. Are there any who've had, if you like, a, a, a better crisis? Are there any journalists who've stood out for you? Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, um, the stuff that's been published on uh, Reuters recently has been like properly top-notch stuff, like pieces, you know, with interviews across the world with different doctors talking about the experiences they've had, for instance, on like ventilator machines. Um, the reporting in The Atlantic has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, the BBC itself, I mean, you look at last night's panorama, that's making the running today in terms of questions in Parliament. It's good investigative work. Uh, the FT has been having like a really good crisis. I think its coverage has been exceptional. I mean, there's really good reporting out there. And and you also, and of course, there's an absolute bucket load of shite as well. I mean, we're never going to get to a position where, you know, all of the reporting is particularly fantastic. Um, I think it's kind of, and I should add to that, you know, like throughout the Brexit sort of debate, we've been pointing out problems with the kind of coverage that you see, you know, where it's misleading, where it doesn't take into account the weight of sort of expert opinion. I think it's kind of incumbent on us now when we look at the media to think, A, to point out the stuff that's good as well and to remember in your head that you have also just experienced good journalism that has informed you about the world. I mean, right now, everyone's traffic is through the roof, you know, to, to news sites, partly because no one's got anything else to fucking do. <laughs> but nevertheless, people are getting their information from these sites and then saying, well, I don't trust them. It's like, well, it doesn't look that way in terms of your behavior because you keep on going to them. But then also when we criticize journalism as bad, to be specific about what it is that is bad about it, how it is failing, rather than allowing it to be this sort of great broad brushstroke of distrust against the entirety of the industry. Naomi, has anybody stood out for you? Well, Ian's only just gone and stolen all of mine. <laughs> great, great. Um, I, I won't bore you with, with repeating that. Um, uh, the one that, that springs to mind that I'd add um, is Wired magazine. Wasn't particular. I mean, they've interviewed me before, but I confess I wasn't a major consumer of their content. But, you know, really thoughtful, long-form, intelligent pieces, very, very well researched on all aspects um, of, you know, epidemiology, uh, you know, viral um, spreads, right through to the uh, behavioural aspects, right through to, you know, which countries are doing what in terms of lifting lockdown and really easy to understand um, articles so yeah I'd, I'd also add them to the list we've come to the end of the podcast which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics we're confining ourselves at home in order to save the world so what music tv books or even podcasts will take our mind off the great task at hand ian how about you what have you been doing uh so i rewatched um some of my favorite films uh which is before um sunrise before sunset and before midnight um most recently before midnight which i mean like, I, well, i'm not going to do spoilers but ultimately like you know if, if, if before midnight is one of those films that doesn't give you what you want and then after and it's quite frustrating as it happens and then afterwards you start to realize that it may arguably have just given you what you actually needed these films are like unspeakably beautiful films they all they're all basically on the subject of romance and they've all basically involved two people talking to each other for an hour and a half which sounds boring as fuck and absolutely isn't it's completely delightful but they're pretty much the only films i think i've seen on the subject of romance that refuse to lie to you like they actually tell the truth about the best parts and the worst parts of romance they are extremely extremely wonderful indeed and if you haven't watched them now would be a pretty fucking good time although i have to say they do involve 
people walking around beautiful foreign cities. So it's kind of like anti-lockdown porn. Yeah, it's it's like all the things you could have. But nevertheless, they're worth a watch. Robert, when you're not tuning into the virtual parliament, uh, what do you do to unwind? Uh, Well, a few things. I I love to cook. and It's one of the ways I really like to relax myself. And also, I'm very lucky, as I said earlier, to uh, we live in the Peak District, and so my partner and I, uh, we're able to step outside our front door and be in the Peak District National Park in about five minutes. So my favourite thing to do to relax is to go for my hour of permitted exercise a day um, in, in some of the most beautiful surroundings anywhere in the world. So that's that's my big, big thing to relax. I also i have been doing an awful lot of reading, um, working my way back through Robert Caro's um, fantastic uh, works on um, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson and all sorts of reading. That's the kind of thing which I've really, really good way of relaxing too. Naomi, what's been your go-to for self-isolation escapism? Well, seeing as when I step outside the front door, I don't have the Peak District as a pigeon poo. So, um, yeah, I, I go for a quick jog and that's about it. But in terms of um, staying in, I am obsessed with Israeli Netflix. Right? I cannot get enough of it. So, like, Unorthodox was my gateway drug, yeah? Um, and then from there, I binged uh, Steisel and then When Heroes Fly. And the acting, the production, the scripting is all amazing. And, like, the real benefit is that I don't speak Hebrew um, and I've only got a little bit of Yiddish. So I have to watch the screen and I can't, like, mindlessly scroll my phone at the same time. So I'm absolutely forced to appreciate every second of it and get some proper downtime away from emails pinging in and slack messages going off and and whatsapps from the team and and you know others that are trying to get hold of me um so if anyone listening wants to share my admiration for the actors like Shira Haas and Amit Rahav and Michael Aloney and Dov Glickman oh my god hit me up because I am all over that stuff well I never thought I would say this but um when I was at university, I was forced to read a Trollope, Anthony Trollope novel, and I did not enjoy it at all because it was all about it was all about vicars and what they did in vicarages, and it was exceptionally boring, and it was just like the definition of, of, of tedium as far as I was concerned. But you know, then somebody said Trollope is the perfect reading for lockdown, and I thought that since I could download Trollope free onto my Kindle, there was no excuse any longer not to give Trollope another go, particularly as I was not going to try War and Peace again, no matter what the economist said. So I did try Trollope um, the way we live now, and it was uh, it's actually very good and i feel very middle-aged now so there that's the end of this week's bunker <laughs> thanks to our panel naomi smith robert Larkin, and to ian dunt we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week subscribe to the bunker on apple podcasts and follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod and don't forget you can now back us on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast thanks for listening see you next week The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.